Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2. Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and count of condescension, Michael Ian Black. I am delighted, as always, to be with you. The week, as it were, has been dreary, the weather and mood and such, but we continue. I mean, we are into winter and winter always has a slightly foreboding quality to it, regardless of whether the holidays are coming or not. And in fact, they are. Uh, Christmas is upon us. The new year will follow. A vaccine is being rolled out as I speak. So that obviously is some good news. We are not without some optimism here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Me and my dumb dog squash and my steaming hot cup of English breakfast tea. So we begin today with Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, who has met his dear friend Henry Clerval there at Ingolstadt almost by accident. If you recall, Frankenstein stumbled from his apartment uh, after the creature came to life and was just sort of wandering aimlessly through the town when who should he come upon but his dear friend Henry Clerval. And Henry's like, hey, what a, what a happy coincidence. Here I am. Like I, my dad said I could come to Ingolstadt, you know, to study. And, and as soon as I get off the carriage, there you are. Like, this is great. Victor, this is great. And Victor's like, no, I know. It's totally amazing. Like, I'm totally psyched. 
and and Henry's like, so we, you want to hang out? You want to? What do you want to do? You want to get a drink? Like, what do you want to do? And Vic's like, yeah, definitely, man. Like, tell me what? Like, what the hell? Like, what's going on, bro? Like, what have you been up to, bro? And Henry's like, yeah, my dad, you know, gave me a hard time back going to college, but he said I could go. And and you know, meanwhile, Victor's brain is basically reeling because he's got a big buddy sitting there in his apartment, eight feet tall, skin of yellow, freaky eyes scars, skin bursting out of, or skin uh, uh, stretched tight because the muscles underneath are, are bursting to be set free. And he's just trying to put it out of mind. He's just like, he's just so, uh, he's just in denial right now about everything that's going on. That's where we are. Um, he's asked about his family. Henry's like, yeah, you really should write to them more. And Victor responds, responds, uh, you've guessed right. I've lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest as you see, but I hope, I sincerely hope that all these employments are now at an end and that I am at length free. And that's where we left off last time. Him going, yeah, I guess, you know, now the creature's alive. I guess I'm, I guess like it's fine now. I guess everything's copacetic. Like I can just go back to my life, right? Get on the Peloton, you know, do 20 minutes with my favorite instructor, uh, go out, you know, get some vegan chili, like whatever, like I'm, I'm good. So he says that. And now we pick up. I trembled excessively. I could not endure to think of and far less to allude to the occurrences of the preceding night. I walked with a quick pace, and we soon arrived at my college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature whom I had left in my apartment might still be there, alive and walking about. Yeah! Yeah, dude. Yes! You created a creature. He got up from the table. He came to tuck you into bed. You freaked out. You ran away. Why do you think he wouldn't be there still? What is it that you think would have happened in the interim? That he's not, you know, just like wandering from apartment to apartment, knocking on doors, going, you know, like, what do you think happened? I dreaded to behold this monster, but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Entreating him, therefore, to remain a few minutes at the bottom of the stairs. Oh, so then I see they've gotten back to his room. So when we we soon arrived at my college, I guess that means where he lives. I thought thought it just meant the collection of buildings where they were going to, you know, get a sandwich or whatever. But no, I darted up towards my own room. My hand was already on the lock of the door before I recollected myself. I then paused. I don't know if he means recollected, like got himself together, like collected himself, or if he means like, um, uh, rec- I don't know what that means. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. We have the general idea. I then paused and a cold shivering came over me. I threw the door forcibly open as children are accustomed to when they expect a specter to stand in waiting for them on the other side but nothing appeared. I stepped fearfully in. The apartment was empty, and my bedroom was also freed from its hideous guest. 
I could hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me. But when I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled, I clapped my hands for joy and ran down to Clerval. We ascended into my room, and the servant presently brought breakfast. I guess the servant doesn't live there, right? I guess the servant is just somebody who lives in the building and just like, hey, here's your breakfast. Because if the servant lived there, the servant would be like, hey, what's up with the giant corpse that you reanimated last night? But that didn't happen. But I was unable to contain myself. It was not joy only that possessed me. I felt my flesh tingle with excess of sensitiveness, and my pulse beat rapidly. Yeah, that's what happens when you take Adderall. I wonder if he's on Adderall. I mean, that would explain the sleepless nights, the mania, the weight loss, the whole thing. I was unable to remain for a single instant in the same place. I jumped over the chairs, clapped my hands, and laughed aloud. Clerval at first attributed my unusual spirits to joy on his arrival, but when he observed me more attentively, he saw a wildness in my eyes for which he could not account, and my loud, unrestrained, heartless laughter frightened and astonished him. My dear Victor, cried he, what for God's sake is the matter? Do not laugh in that manner. How ill you are. What is the cause of all this? Do not ask me, cried I, putting my hands before my eyes, for I thought I saw the dreaded specter glide into the room. He can tell. Oh, save me. Save me. I imagined that the monster seized me. I struggled furiously and fell down in a fit. So, I mean, I, you know, the fuck, you know, what the fuck is going on with Victor Frankenstein? He's freaking out. You know, I don't know if he's, I, I assume he's not on anything you know, other than just relief and exhaustion and five hour energy drinks, like whatever he's been doing. But it's the psychological component that we're interested in now. It's the psychological uh, debt that is being exacted from Victor Frankenstein after all this time. He has been relieved of one burden and another has been placed upon him. The guilt, the astonishment, the responsibility, the fear. What has he unleashed unto this world? And can he just put it out of mind? Friends, the answer seems to be no. You put something out into the world and it's there, baby. There's nothing you can do about it. Once it's out, it's out. Maybe it's something good. And the ripples are felt, you know, and you touch people and everything is just made a shade brighter. Or maybe it's something demonic, like, I don't know, an eight foot tall uh, walking corpse. And you put it out there and we don't yet know what the effects are on anybody other than its creator. And we can tell those early effects are not good. He just fell down in an epileptic fit. He just collapsed on the ground and is there convulsing and swallowing his tongue. Poor Clerval. What must have been his feelings? A meeting which he anticipated with such joy, so strangely turned to bitterness. But I was not the witness of his grief, for I was lifeless and did not recover my senses for a long, long time. This was the commencement of a nervous fever, which confined me for several months. 
During all that time, Henry was my only nurse. I afterwards learned that knowing my father's advanced age and unfitness for so long a journey, and how wretchedness my sickness would make Elizabeth, he spared them this grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. He knew that I could not have a more kind and attentive nurse than himself, and firm in the hope he felt of my recovery, he did not doubt that instead of doing harm, he performed the kindest action that he could towards them. Uh, this is like that movie. You know that movie, uh, uh, The Alien? Is that what it's called? Where Matt Damon goes to Mars, you know, he goes to Mars and he gets left there and then his crew members think he's dead and then they go back on the ship and then Earth finds out he's alive and he goes, you got to tell the crew. And uh, the, the guys on Earth are like, no, we're not going to tell the crew because they're going to be upset and they got to come home and we need them to focus their energies on getting home. And Matt Damon's like, uh, how do you like them apples? I'm quoting exactly now from the movie, but that's what it was like. The Martian, that's what it's called, The Martian. So, you know, uh, Clerville thinks he's doing everybody a favor. He's going to take care of Victor. He's not, nobody needs to worry about Victor. Yes, he's a little bit sick, but he's going to be fine. Let me, Henry, just take care of everything. But I was, in reality, very ill. In short, but what has made him ill, exactly? Exhaustion? Like, what has made him ill? Was it just a psychological break that he needed to sort of self-induce himself into a coma? Is that what that is? Like, what, what exactly is making him ill? We understand he feels guilty. We understand he may be distempered. But what is making him ill? There's no physical cause of this. Surely nothing but the unbounded and unremitting attentions of my friend could have restored me to life. The form of the monster on whom I had bestowed existence was forever before my eyes, and I raved incessantly concerning him. Doubtless my words surprised Henry. He at first believed them to be the wanderings of my disturbed imagination. But the pertinacity with which I continually recurred to the same subject persuaded him that my disorder indeed owed its origin to some uncommon and terrible event. Tea sip. Just a little aside about the tea. For years now, years, I have been ordering uh, Twinnings English breakfast tea in big 100-count boxes. I get two boxes of them at a time. Well, occasionally what happens is somebody will bestow upon me a gift of tea. You know, rarely. I've had a couple gifts of tea in my life. Loose leaf tea that just sits in my cupboard because what am I going to do? Well, I got, the, I got the tea that I like. It's bagged already. Am I really going to like spoon some unbagged tea into my cup? You know, you, you put it in you know, different ways to do it. But am I really going to take that extra step when I have these bags? Well, friends, let me tell you something. The tea ran out. The tea bags ran out. And rather than order them straight away, I thought, let me use up the tea in my cabinet because nothing satisfies me more in this life than using up what we already have and not running out and purchasing something new when we don't need it. So I'm drinking loose leaf tea. I got a little tea ball and uh, I put it in the little tea ball and now I'm drinking loose leaf tea. 
It's crazy because I played t-ball when I was a kid and now here I am drinking from one. It's not as good. It's not as good. I like my bag tea better. By very slow degrees and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered. I remember the first time I became capable of observing outward objects with any kind of pleasure. I perceived that the fallen leaves had disappeared and that the young buds were shooting forth from the trees that shaded my window. It was a divine spring, and this season contributed greatly to my convalescence. I felt also sentiments of joy and affection revive in my bosom. My gloom disappeared, and in a short time, I became as cheerful as before I was attacked by the fatal passion. Well, why are you saying fatal when you're alive? It wasn't fatal, Dick. It was not fatal at all. It sickened you, this passion. Surely, it sickened you. You've been in bed for months throughout the, the winter, but now... You're as cheerful as before, and uh, the fatal passion has been beaten back, I guess. Potentially fatal passion, okay. Uh, debilitating passion, no doubt. Fatal? No, it wasn't fatal. Dearest Clerval, exclaimed I, how kind, how very good you are to me. This whole winter, instead of being spent in study as you promised yourself, has been consumed in my sick room. How shall I ever repay you? I feel the greatest remorse for the disappointment of which I have been the occasion. But you will forgive me. You will, and this is Clerval speaking, you will repay me entirely if you do not discompose yourself, but get well as fast as you can. And since you appear in such good spirits, I may speak to you on one subject, may I not? I trembled. One subject. What could it be? Could he allude to an object on whom I dared not even think? Compose yourself, said Clerval, who observed my change of color. I will not mention it if it agitates you, but your father and cousin would be very happy if they received a letter from you in your own handwriting. They hardly know how ill you have been and are uneasy at your long silence. Is that all, my dear Henry? How could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love, and whom are so deserving of my love? And, and just because I miss doing it, I will restate that, uh, if I can, in, in the voice of uh, Christopher, Christoph Wolf. Is that all, my dear Henry? How could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love, and whom are so deserving of my love? If this is your present temper, my friend, this is Clerval again, you will perhaps be glad to see a letter that has been lying here some days for you. It is from your cousin, I believe. End of chapter five. So chapter five has ended. You know, why don't we take a quick break? And I'll sip some more of my loose leaf tea, and then we'll come right back here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I have sipped my tea. Uh, Energy is restored. I am recollected or recollected or whatever I'm supposed to be. Chapter 6. Clerval then put the following letter into my hands. It was from my own Elizabeth. Oh, God, another letter. I mean, it started with letter. You know, letter writing, I'm sorry, is not a great literary device. It's boring. It's boring. Like, just do the action. Don't... I don't know. I mean, maybe you can't because it's all told from Frankenstein's or from from Walton's point of view. It's Walton recounting Frankenstein, and now Frankenstein is recounting a letter verbatim from his quote unquote cousin, who's kind of his sister, but he's also supposed to marry. I guess. I don't know. It's awkward. It's an awkward literary device. Um, but fine. You know, we're going to give Mary this. You know, we've been giving Mary a lot of free passes, and I don't like it. I don't like it. We never gave Hardy any free passes. Hardy got himself tongue lashing after tongue lashing from yours truly. And I feel like I'm holding back on Shelley. Uh, why am I doing that? Is it because, you know, she was 17? Maybe. Because she's a woman? Is that latent sexism on my part? No doubt. But this is just not a good literary device. I don't like it. I didn't like it when Walton was writing letters and we were reading those letters. I don't like it now, but I will continue with my objection noted for the record. And Squash over here is filing the motion and making sure that it is in the record. My dearest cousin, you have been ill, very ill, and even the constant letters of dear kind Henry are not sufficient to reassure me on your account. You are forbidden to write, to hold a pen. Yet one word from you, dear Victor, is necessary to calm our apprehensions. For a long time I have thought that each post would bring this line, and my persuasions have restrained my uncle from undertaking a journey to Ingolstadt. I have prevented his encountering the inconveniences and perhaps dangers of so long a journey, Yet how often I have regretted not being able to perform it myself. 
I figure to myself that the task of attending on your sickbed has devolved on some mercenary old nurse who could never guess your wishes, nor minister to them with the care and affection of your poor cousin. Yet that is over now. Clerval writes that indeed you are getting better. I eagerly hope that you will confirm this intelligence soon in your own handwriting. Get well and return to us. You will find a happy, cheerful home and friends who love you dearly. Your father's health is vigorous and he asks but to see you, but to be assured that you are well and not a care will ever cloud his benevolent countenance. How pleased you would be to remark the improvement of our earnest he is now sixteen and full of activity and spirit. He is desirous to be a true Swiss and to enter into foreign service, but we cannot part with him, at least until his elder brother return to us. My uncle is not pleased with the idea of a military career in a distant country, but Ernest never had your powers of application. He looks upon study as an odious fetter. His time is spent in the open air, climbing the hills or rowing on the lake. I fear that he will become an idler unless we yield the point and permit him to enter on the profession which he has selected. Little alteration except the growth of our dear children has taken place since you left us. Whose dear children? What children? What children? I don't know what children she means. The blue lake and snow-clad mountains, they never change. And I think our placid home and our contented hearts are regulated by the same immutable laws. My trifling occupations take up my time and amuse me, and I am rewarded for any exertions by seeing none but happy, kind faces around me. Since you left us, but one change has taken place in our little household. Do you remember on what occasions Justine Moritz entered our family? Probably you do not. I will relate her history, therefore, in a few words. So this is weird. Do you remember when so-and-so entered our family? I feel like that's the kind of thing you remember. Like, I remember when we got Jack-Jack, you know? I remember when my daughter was born. I remember when people enter my family. That's one of those things that, although I will freely admit, I don't have the greatest memory. When somebody actually enters my family, well, I'll tell you what, even if they stay with me for a couple weeks, you know, even if they just come over and they, you know, they, 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 they live in the spare bedroom for a couple of weeks, I tend to remember that stuff and I wouldn't consider those people part of my family. I'm not equating my daughter being born with adopting Jack-Jack, by the way. Both were mistakes, certainly, but one of them was the bigger mistake. So, it, you know, this is another literary device that I, I, that I hate. The, 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 the needless exposition. She's just laying pipe here, right? Uh, perhaps you remember Justine Moritz, whom we have not mentioned yet in the book, so I will mention her now and give you her entire backstory. Okay. Bad. Bad writing. Probably you do not. Probably you don't remember when somebody came into our family. I will relate her history, therefore, in a few words. Madame Moritz, her mother, was a widow with four children, of whom Justine was the third. This girl had always been the favorite of her father, but through a strange perversity, 
her mother could not endure her, and after the death of Monsieur Moritz, treated her very ill. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Through a strange perversity, her mother could not endure her. How many of us parents have felt that exact same perversity towards our own children at times. It is very perverse indeed, yet uh, probably more natural than most people would let on. It does happen. Although, come on, nobody hates their kids. We all love our kids, so it would be a strange perversity if you really hated your kid. My aunt observed this, and when Justine was 12 years of age, prevailed on her mother, this is Frankenstein's mother, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house. The Republican institutions of our country have produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. Hence, there is less distinction between the several classes of its inhabitants, and the lower orders, being neither so poor nor so despised, their manners are more refined and moral. A servant in Geneva does not mean the same thing as a servant in France and England. Justine, thus received in our family, learned the duties of a servant, a condition which, in our fortunate country, does not include the idea of ignorance and a sacrifice of the dignity of a human being. So I think I'm going to amend my earlier protestation because I think I was getting hung up on the idea of part of our family. So I suspect that what Elizabeth is talking about here now is kind of like the Downton Abbey version of family, where everybody in the household is called family. So Justine Moritz, uh, poor little wretched Justine Moritz, is probably, she's, uh, she's in the downstairs there, and she's in service. And the mother was like, oh, you have this poor thing here that you hate. Let me take her. Let me put her into service. Give her a happy home. She'll grow up here. She'll have a job. And, and she won't be despised the way servants in France and England are despised, just merely looked down on. We will just, we'll simply look down on her a little bit, you know, but we're not going to hate her. And the mother was like, well, fuck it. I hate her. Take her. Take the bitch. So that's what happened. Justine, you may remember, was a great favorite of yours. So wait, now I have to retract my protestation. Justine, if you remember, was a great favorite of yours. If she lived there and he was, she was a favorite of Victor's, then duh, he remembers. And he remembers the circumstances of her story. God, Mary. And I recollect you once remarked that if you were in... In ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it, for the same reason that Ariosto gives concerning the beauty of Angelica. And here we have the day's first footnote. So let me return now to the footnote section. I am looking this up. Who are those people? Uh, the beauty of Angelica, the heroine of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso from 1516. So some long-lost literary masterpiece that she is uh, recalling. Uh, Justine could dissipate it for the same reason that Ariosto gives concerning the beauty of Angelica. She looked so frank-hearted and happy. So Justine, I guess, was just such a like sort of happy, open, simple child that just a look from her would breathe delight into the air. Similar, I guess, in a way, to the, the way Elizabeth has been described to this point. Uh, 
My aunt conceived a great attachment for her, by which she was induced to give her an education superior to that which she had in first intended. This benefit was fully repaid. Justine was the most grateful little creature in the world. I do not mean that she made any professions. No, obviously, she's a girl. She's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, Mary, okay, very funny, Mary Shelley, very funny. Uh, I never heard one pass her lips, but you could see by her eyes that she almost adored her protectress. Oh, I see. She's not said professions doesn't mean job. It means like profession of love. Although her disposition was gay, and in many respects inconsiderate, yet she paid the greatest attention to every gesture of my aunt. She thought her the model of all excellence, and endeavored to imitate her phraseology and manners, so that even now she often reminds me of her. When my dearest aunt died, everyone was too much occupied in their own grief to notice poor Justine, who had attended her illness with the most anxious affection. Poor Justine was very ill, but other trials were reserved for her. Well, I mean, I guess we'll pick up the story of poor Justine the next time we have introduced another tragic character into the story of Frankenstein. And despite myself, I find myself interested in what happened to poor Justine Moritz. She, the wretch, the servant girl who rose above her station, who fell in love with Frankenstein's mother and repaid her kindnesses with great attention during her illness. As a result, she got ill herself, and trials are about to befall her. The specter of death looms over the story. And so, let's leave it there. Let's leave it with tragedy about to unfurl. As you know, I like when tragedies happen in stories. It's the reason I read stories. I'm not here for laughs. I never read for laughs. People are like, don't you love David Sedaris? I'm like, I never read him. I'm never reading for laughs. Have I read David Sedaris? Sure. I don't read comedy. I don't watch comedy. I'm not interested in comedy. I just watched Hannah Gatsby's uh, Nanette, Gatsby's Nanette for the first time, uh, which I was supposed to watch years ago and everybody was watching it. But I was like, I don't watch comedy. I don't watch, I don't like stand-up. And so much of what she talked about was how comedy fails her. It is limiting. And I understood what she meant. It is different for her than for me, of course. Um, our stories are very different. We are very different people. But that idea of the limitations of comedy struck for me a chord. And I never seek out, I shouldn't say never, I rarely seek out comedy. I don't even recall how I started talking about comedy just now. But, you know, who can blame me? It was easily 25 seconds ago, and I am not a young man. So we'll pick up this story. We'll pick up the tragedy of Frankenstein and Elizabeth and Justine Moritz and the creature who was just out there somewhere, you know, in Ingolstadt. Nobody seems to be mentioning or seeing this eight foot tall creature just kind of wandering around, which, you know, again, we'll give Mary a pass because I don't know. It just it doesn't seem very believable to me, you know. A lot of people see Bigfoot, and Bigfoot doesn't even exist. But this creature that does exist, nobody in Ingolstadt has seen it. 
Does it not need food? Does it not need, is it not drawn to light, to people, to mirth, to conviviality, to gaiety? Is it, is it, where, where is it? What is it doing? Nobody even found, you know, if it died, nobody found the corpse. So what's going on? I guess we'll find out on another scintillating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedrin. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in a addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add.